All right, Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8, reading through verse 20. Paul writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Just looking back at last week in verses 1 through 7 in chapter 4, because verses 8 through 20, as you read through this, It's like Paul is taking a bit of a break from his argument to make a personal appeal to them. So you can almost in a way say that verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4 serves as a sort of a conclusion to his argument that he's been making starting in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1, about the relationship between works of the law and faith how one is justified, how one receives all of the benefits of Christ, how one becomes a son, an heir of the promises. It is not through law observance. It is always through faith. And he concludes in this section here about, again, talking about the purpose of the law, what the law served, what purpose it served. And in in, in all these cases, in the last part of chapter 3, leading in the early part of chapter 4, Paul is making the... Um, the argument that the law was temporary. Now, it doesn't mean that following the moral law written on our hearts, being obedient is temporary. The law he's referring to specifically here is the Mosaic law was a temporary set of guardrails, if you will. I mean, he uses it, he almost says it's like a prison, right, or a school, that's probably the better, uh, the, you know, the more friendly uh, analogy he uses. But he, he refers to the law as a prison warden, as a guard, as a tutor, as a steward, uh, all these things to, to show how the law had a very temporary effect while the people of God were in their infancy, if you will, in their childhood. Uh, and they reach maturity, if you will, when Christ comes. That's the big the big reveal that you get in chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come. So you get this this great um, transition that they were enslaved to these things, that they were under the stewardship, they were a child child heir waiting for the time 
that they could come into their inheritance, and that time comes when Christ comes. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. Christ comes, he fulfills the law because he's born under it. He submits himself to the law by being born under it, and then he fulfills it in order to redeem us, to buy us back out of slavery, and then to receive adoption. We are now adopted into the family of God, and we are now sons. And then because we're sons, we are now fellow heirs with Christ. And the, the, the proof of that is the fact that God sends his spirit into us who cries out in our hearts that we are his children. His spirit comes in and, and, and says that we are the children of God, that we, we have the privilege of calling God our father, not our judge, not some impersonal force out there that wants to crush us, uh, but our father. And a father, of course brings the idea of one who is a loving father, depending on however your earthly father was, don't, don't put that, that template over God as father. That's the point. God as father is a loving father. He's a gracious father. He's a merciful father um, who does discipline his children, but he does so out of love. And then he stops there, and then he, I guess verses 8 through 11 really could be like a transition from that section into what he's going to make his appeal in verses 12 through 20, but we can treat it all as one section there. But he comes, now he's going to make a pause here, and, and he's going to make an appeal to them. He's going to make an appeal based on everything he has said so far. He's going to make an appeal to the Galatians to come back, if you will, to, to come back to the freedom that is yours in the gospel, to not, to not leave that freedom and then to go and put yourself under a yoke of slavery again. Uh, then when we get to it, Lord willing, next week, when we finish chapter 4, uh, he gives another example. It's like he's got one more, <laughs> one more thing to say about the law and the promise. Um, I don't know how many people here watched Bugs Bunny cartoons growing up. I was a huge Bugs Bunny fan growing up. And there's one where he's fighting with Elmer Fudd, and he takes Elmer Fudd's gun and shoots him, and he's like, oh, wait, I got one more bullet left. He's, so, you know, here he's got one more bullet left in his gun. He wants to uh, give you this, this analogy, this allegory, uh, which is interesting because, you know, oftentimes people who, who are very serious about the Bible don't like allegory. It's like, well, Paul is going to give you an allegory here, and he's going to show you how something that happened in history has an allegorical, if you will, interpretation uh, in the New Testament. But anyway, that's for next week, so just to whet your appetite there. But here, again, this is a, a plea, a passionate pastoral plea from Paul. There's a lot of P's there. So I alliterated it for you just... Because that's why you pay me the, the big bucks here, right? To come up with these clever alliterations. So Paul's personal pastoral plea uh, here in verses 8 through 20. And he's going to express a passionate plea for the Christian formation of the Galatians. That's, that's the idea for this morning. Paul's plea is that the Galatians will be formed in Christ. That they will not give up their, their, their Christian formation to put themselves back under a yoke of slavery. So in verses 8 through 11, we're going to see that plea here in verses 8 through 11. So let's look at those again. Formerly, or in the past, 
when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things by nature are not God's. But now, so you've got a contrast, this is a, 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 a before and after. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So again, after speaking at length uh, of the temporal and temporary nature of the law, how it was there to serve as a guardian for uh, the children of the people of God in their infancy, if you will, he makes a pastoral plea to the Galatians. Now again, the, the thrust of his argument here is that our justification before God, our declaration of being righteous in his sight, our being declared just, and receiving then the promise and the heir and, and the inheritance is through faith. It is not through the keeping of the law. And then he, go, he engages in this little before and after, when you did not know God, before you came into a saving relationship with God, before you were sons and heirs in a sense, if you will, before coming to faith, the Galatians served things that were by nature not God's. You were enslaved. That was, you know, that's the idea. You were serving. You were serving as a slave. Those things which by nature are not God's. In other, th- in other words, things that are not inherently God's, right? By nature, that word there, phusis, means something that is inherent to the thing. And they think they're God's, but they're not. So this could be speaking of the Galatians, uh, their, their pagan idolatry, their pagan worship, worshiping things that are not God's. Uh, and that's what they, many of them did before they knew God, right? That's what many of us did before we knew God. We worshiped things that were not God's, right? Whether Now, in our context, of course, there's not a lot of pagan idolatry in the sense that you, like you see it here, where we are literally bowing down to little idols of things, but we make idols of things, right? We make idols of ourselves. We make idols of other people. We make idols of wealth. We make idols of fame, fortune, uh, whatever power, we make idols of the government. Um, so we, we, you know, even though we don't bow down to little statues, we are idolatrous people, and we serve things that were by nature not gods. That's what Paul's making his appeal here to. But now he says, in contrast, but now, right, but now, just like in verse 4 of chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, but now that you've come to know God. And now look at that. I like how he says it there. It's like a correction. He says, now that you've come to know God, but wait, rather to be known by God, because he has to say that because by nature, the Galatians would not have known God. Why? Because they were not seeking God. That's what Paul says in Romans. That's what Paul says in other places. We are not seeking God. Right? We are seeking our own things. Uh, no one seeks after God, is what he says in, in Romans chapter 3. No one seeks after God. You have to be sought by God. God has to pull you out of slavery. God has to pull you out of darkness. God has to send his spirit into you to cause you to be born again so that you can then see your, your sin, right? Otherwise, you're not going to see anything. You're in darkness. Everything looks dark. The light has to shine in your heart. You have to be known by God. We love God because he first loved us. We know God because he first knows us. 
But now that you've been known by God, and here's the thing, how can you turn back to these things? You were enslaved to these things before. Now that you're known by God, why would you go back to those things? Why would you submit yourself to slavery to those things? Why would you go back, as he says here, to the weak and worthless, weak, asthenos, it means like physically weak, physically lame, you know, just kind of like just weak and sick, sickly, or worthless. That word there is derived from the word for poor, a poor person, or something that is just not worth anything. Why would you go back to those things? They're weak and worthless because they have no power. They're weak and worthless because they cannot save you. They cannot justify you. They cannot give you an inheritance. They cannot adopt you as sons. Why would you now that you've been known by God go back to those things? In other words, it it makes sense that maybe before you were known by God, you would find some value in them. But now that you realize, because you've been known by God, that these things are weak and worthless, why would you turn back to them? And he refers to that phrase there, elementary principles. We looked at that last time in verse 3 of chapter 4, where he says in there, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In other words, these things were guardians and managers, if you will, things that held us in check until we became old enough. Well, here he uses that same phrase, the stoicheion, the elementary principles, the ABCs of things, the ABCs of the worlds. Why would you go back to the, to the things that have no power? And it's not just a turning back, it's a desire to turn back. Um, trying to think, where's the word there? I saw it. You, um, but now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, um, how can you turn back? Uh, whose slaves you want to be. Okay, there's that word, you want to be. That's that desire, a desire to return to bondage and slavery. It perplexes Paul. It perplexes him. Why would you want to do this? Um, you know, we, we go back to Galatians 3, verse 3. The f- really, like, the beginning of this whole section where he says, there are you so foolish, <laughs> Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's perplexed. He was perplexed then. You have begun by the Spirit. You realize that salvation is by grace through faith. Now are you going to be perfected in the flesh? Uh, the idea is you can't go back to these things. <laughs> you know, I, I like to say it's like redemptive history goes in one direction. You can't go back to something that has passed because it served its purpose. That's the point Paul's making. The law has served its purpose. It's brought you to maturity, right? It's no longer necessary. So why would you go back to something like that? It, 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 its purpose is done. So going back to it is you're going back to something that, as he says here, weak and worthless. So we said here, you know, again, chapter 3, verse 3, he's perplexed. Are you so foolish, having begun uh, by the uh, Spirit? Are you perfected in the flesh? Uh, again, in Romans, because there's a lot of connections between Galatians and Romans. Romans 8, verse, in chapter 8 of Romans. Here he talks about the law, in a sense, because Romans 7 is 
you know, the, the struggle, particularly verses 7 and following, the struggle with the, the Christian in keeping the law in, in the flesh because we have no power to keep it. So at the end of that, he, he cries out in verse 24, chapter 7, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in chapter 8, in verse 3 particularly, he says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in flesh, in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So I gave you a bonus verse there, verses 3 and 4. But here we're seeing that God is doing something that the law could not do. Why? Because the law does not, again, remember what the law does. In this case, Paul is using the law as a mirror. He's like, the law just tells you what God requires. It gives you no power to do what God requires. It just says, here's the bar. And then it says, it doesn't give you any power to get over the bar. It just says, this is where the bar is. And then you're like, I can't get over the bar. And the law's like, sorry, <laughs> that's where the bar is. You, you know, I can't lower the bar because this is God's law, not human law. God's law, the bar is here. But I can't give you any power to keep it. So the law, in a sense, as Paul says here in Romans 8.3, is weakened by the flesh. Our flesh cannot keep it. So the law has, cannot uh, serve as a means to earn righteousness. But then he accomplishes that, not through our flesh, but by sending his own son in, our, in the likeness of our flesh in order that the re- righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the flesh, or not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So in other words, what the law could not do, he sends his son to do. His son does clear the bar, and then by faith in his son, we then have that righteousness applied to us. But again, the law cannot do it. It's weak. It's, it's worthless in that sense. It's an elementary principle. He mentions these elementary principles again in Colossians chapter 2. I think we may have looked at these last week. Particularly Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 through 23. So in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 20, Paul there says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, that same word there, stoikeion, Why then, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? So in Christ, you've died to these things. Why then are you acting as if you're alive to these things? And then he goes on, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Could be referring to the Jewish law. He could be referring to the, more than likely, a lot of the pharisaical additions to the law. Uh, And then verse 23, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They look like they might be useful, but they have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then I think when I hear that, I think of all the times Jesus kind of tears into the Pharisees. It's like you're doing all these things you know, you're cleaning the outside of that tomb, and man, that tomb looks white. It's, it's, it's beautiful, but guess what's inside that tomb? You still got a dead corpse in there. 
right? You clean the outside of the cup, the outside looks great, but you look on the inside, it's filthy. That reminds me of my dad's iced tea cup. I don't know if I've told this story before. My dad had this plastic cup that he would drink, a big tumbler, that he would drink iced tea in it. And, you know, of course, the outside looked fine, but on the inside, it had the residue of decades of drinking iced tea in it. And it just kind of, I guess it added to the flavor, but um, anyway. One more passage in the book of Hebrews. Actually, a couple in the book of Hebrews, but first one is chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 18, uh, here the author of Hebrews is neck deep in this comparison of Jesus to Melchizedek. And if you remember last week, we looked at chapter 5, where he talks about, you know, I'd love to tell you more about this Melchizedek, but you're, you're not able to hear it <laughs> because you've become dull of hearing. Um, but here, after, he says, okay, but we're going to plow forward anyway. We're going to talk about Melchizedek. But in verse 18 of chapter 7, the author here says, On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. The former commandment, again, being the Mosaic law. Uh, In particular, as it applies to the priesthood. Uh, The Levitical priesthood was a remnant, uh, 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 an artifact of the Mosaic law, and it was set aside because Christ comes as a better priesthood, not according to the Mosaic law, but according to the order of Melchizedek. But the point is, you know, he says it's weakness and uselessness. The, the, the former things are weak and useless. One more passage in chapter 10 of Hebrews. But at the end of chapter 10, verses, um, let's start in verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So that's a quote from Habakkuk that Paul also quotes in Galatians 3. Uh, but we are not of those who shrink back but are in our destroy, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Again, so... The righteous one lives not by the law, but by faith. The the law is weak and worthless in in regards to producing righteousness and in regards to justification. So going back to Galatians 4, if you will. So he says, why do you want to turn back to these things that are weak and worthless? Why do you want to be enslaved by them? You observe days and months and seasons and years almost certainly a reference to the uh, Mosaic um, religious calendar that had festivals and special days of observance and seasons of observance and things that were done every year and every month and so on and so forth. Why would you want to enslave yourself to these things? The lure of legalism appeals to our flesh. It appeals to our flesh because what legalism basically says is that we can do it, okay? And what it all boils down to, and I've said this before, but what it all boils down to is it's either God's way or our way, okay? And when we say, when we, we, when we kind of fall into traps of legalism, we're saying it's our way. We're, we're, God tells us you can't do it, and we're like, no, 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 we can't. I, I can't. 
So you haven't seen me really try. It's like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to really now, I'm going to start working. And you, you better watch out, God, because it, it's just, it's, it's, it's denying what God is telling us. It's in a sense what it's doing. When you start to plow and pile on rules and regulations and things you got to do in order to be saved, you are not only destroying the gospel, but you are, in a sense, calling God a liar. And you're saying, we don't need God. <laughs> in a sense, that's what, it, you know, it's, so it's an autonomy in a sense of, I don't need God, I can do this. And God says, no, you, do, you cannot do this. You do need me to do these things. Let's move on a little quicker now. Paul's ministry with the Galatians in verses 12 through 16. So now he's going to remind them of his ministry with them, and he begins with an urgent plea in verse 12 where he says here, Brothers, I entreat you. That word there is like beg. I plead. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. As you read that, I said, what do you mean? Here, Paul. Well, become as I am. What, what, is, how, what is Paul? Well, Paul is free from the law. Paul recognizes that in Christ he's free from the law. Paul recognizes that I could not do any of these things. So now I, 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 I recognize that my righteousness is in Christ. I've referenced this passage multiple times before too, but in Philippians 3. And you know Philippians 3 where Paul is talking about his his resume before, before the law. He's like, before I came to Christ, I thought I had it all. I thought I could do it all, right? I was, you know, I, I, you, know not, you look at my pedigree. I mean, I was circumcised. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was, you know, I had, I had the pedigree that can go back and back and back. And then in my own performance, I was, I was a persecutor of the church. I was a Pharisee. I was under the law. I was blameless. I did everything the law required me of me to do. And then he sees Christ, and he realizes, no, I, I've fallen far short. All of these things that I've once put my trust in are garbage, are rubbish, are rubbish. Why would you go back? So he's like, become as I am. Understand that you cannot earn these things through the law. Recognize that, that you, all of your works are rubbish. If you're trying to present God your works, that is rubbish. He says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are, in a sense, you know, Gentiles who are not under the law. And he says, look, you've, you've done me no harm. He's not taking a personal affront to this. This is not like, oh, you've hurt my feelings. This is I am, I, am, I am zealous for you because you are abandoning the gospel. You're not, you're not hurting me. You're hurting yourselves by doing this. So you know, there's, you've done me no wrong. You've done me no wrong. And then in verses 13 through 15, Paul recounts his time with the Galatians. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, this has been a passage that has caused a lot of people to speculate because we don't have anything recorded in the book of Acts that talks about, at least in Paul's Galatian ministry, 
that he had any kind of ailment or anything. I mean, we know a lot of things that happened to Paul. We know he got beaten. We know that he got stoned, the bad kind where they throw rocks at you. Uh, we know that he got you know, shipwrecked. We know that he was put in jail. Um, we don't have anything specifically in the book of Acts that speaks of this. So many have uh, felt that, well, you know, he stopped and preached in the Galatian churches because he was physically unable to continue on his journey. So he stopped, and while he was there, he preached. And he must have had some kind of uh, eye ailment because he says there in verse 15, For I testify that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. I mean, these are all educated guesses, and and I don't think they're necessarily anything wrong with them, but I just don't like going beyond what what the Scripture uh, says here explicitly. Whatever the case may be, he ministered to them. He had some kind of ailment. They treated him as an angel. They treated him as a very messenger of God himself when he came. And he's like, now where did all that good cheer go? (laughs) You know, when he says, you know, you would have given me your eyes, it's like what we would say, you would have given me the shirt off your back. You would have given me anything, right? Because you, you received me so well. Now, what happened? You know, as, as the, um, oh, who are those? The righteous brothers, right? You know, you've lost the loving feeling. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> what happened to the loving feeling that we had? We, we did so many wonderful things together. Have I then become your enemy? So have I, I went from, from hero to zero, to, to quote the cartoon Hercules. I went from angel of God to enemy, to one who is hated, to one who is odious. Where did all that good cheer go? He says, was it because I'm speaking the truth to you? I'm, I'm speaking truthfully. I, I, I speak truthfully to you. Uh, because we all know, right, if you speak the truth... People don't like that sometimes, right? You know, you just look at our world today. If you speak the truth into anything going on in the world today, what happens to you, right? You know, you get uh, canceled. You get um, labeled all kinds of nasty things only because you are speaking truth. You are, you are basically denying their denial of reality. <laughs> I refuse to accept your denial of reality. Um, Paul here labored greatly to bring the gospel to the Galatians. He was not seeking his own welfare. He was not trying to build a name for himself. He was not trying to build a following. He realized that he was sent by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, that he had a mission, and that that's what he would do. And he gave himself to them. Paul gave himself to the work in the Galatians there, I mean, to the point where he was you know, physically ill, and it still preached the gospel to them. He gave himself to them. And previously, they gave himself to him. Now he's shocked at their sudden turnaround for speaking truthfully. Um, and, and here you're going to see a contrast now as we look at the last point here, particularly what you see in verses 13 through 15 and then what you see in verse 17. Because look, you know, when you're looking at verses 13 through 15, you see you know, I, I, me, I, me. And then when you look at Verse 17, they, they, them. Now, we're not talking about pronouns here, okay? I mean, he's, he's making a contrast here between how I minister to you and how these Judaizers who have come in now and have sort of enslaved you to this way of living, what they do. I gave myself to you, Paul is saying. I, I labor to the point of, of you know, uh, severe physical illness, 
But what do they do? Well, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. They, 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 sorry, that you may make much of them. So unlike Paul, the Judaizers weren't interested in the Galatians for their benefit, but for the benefit of the Judaizers. They were building their own following. They were building their own um, kingdom, if you will. Paul will say this again in uh, Galatians 6, verses 12 and 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, these Judaizers, what they were concerned with? Numbers. How many people can they get circumcised? How many people can they get following the law? How many people can they get uh, you know, to do all these things? And it's, It was a numbers game for them. It was all for them. I think of Matthew, again, where Jesus is uh, pronouncing woe upon the Pharisees, and he tells them, it's like, you, you scribes and hypocrites, you, uh, because what you will do is you will travel land and sea to make one proselyte, and then what you end up doing is you make that person an enemy of the kingdom of heaven uh, and, and, and unfit for the kingdom. These people are interested in themselves, and I, I think that's a telltale sign of false teachers and false believers, right? Um, they desire converts. They desire to build their brand. They desire to build their churches. They desire to build a following. And what happens oftentimes when you get these big charismatic people, when, when they pass on, usually that movement splinters or it fails. Why? Because that guy that was there kind of driving it is gone. But this, this telltale sign of false teachers, they make much of you for their benefit. It, you, 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 the only purpose that you and the church serve for these people is for their, for their own empire building, for their own benefit, for their own uh, wealth, if you will. But in verse 18, Paul makes sure that we don't condemn zeal. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. Zeal is not the problem. It's the object of that zeal. I think of the story in Numbers 25 with uh, the son of, or is it the grandson of Aaron? Is Phineas the grandson of Aaron? I'm trying to remember if he's the son or grand. Anyway, Phineas was one of the priests, and when the people of God had sort of started uh, giving themselves over to the women of Moab, Phineas goes and he's you know, zealous for the Lord. He goes out and he slays a bunch of these uh, wicked idolaters, and, and he's commended for it. So zeal is not a bad thing. It's just, where's your object of zeal? Where, where are you placing your zeal? Jesus had zeal for his father's house in John chapter 2 when he cleansed the, t- uh, the temple from the, uh, you know, the money changers and the people who were selling there. So zeal is a good thing. But then he continues and he speaks very tenderly to them now. He says, my little children. So he's, he's again making this passionate appeal to the Galatians. Look, for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Paul's ministry to them is like a mother giving birth, right? And a mother giving birth, well, ladies, I don't need to tell you this because I can't even, I, can't, I don't have any, 
any way to just say, yes, I can empathize with, it's like, I could just, all I hear is like, ah, you know, when you're giving birth to children, and, and, and of course, you know, it's like, it's your fault that I'm in this position, um, but Paul's like, look, my ministry to you is this of a mother caring for her children, and my desire is that when you are born, you are formed like Christ. I am in anguish. I am in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And that's what Christian ministry really is supposed to be about. It's not about the numbers. It's not about the size of the church. It's not about the popularity of the minister. It's about Christ being formed in all of you. My job up here is not to build my following. My job up here is to give you this word so that Christ is formed in you. So that through the ministry of the word, through the preaching of the word, the spirit takes this word, plants it in your hearts, and forms you into the image of Jesus Christ. That is what Christian ministry is. And whether it's done to a small group or a large group, that matters not. All that matters is that Christ is formed. And that's, that's Paul's point. It's like they want to make uh, good of you for their own purposes. I am sort of like a mother in childbirth until Christ is formed in you. One of my favorite verses, you don't need to turn there, but I want to make sure I quote it right, is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. It says, To them uh, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then in verse 28, Him, Christ, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or perfect in Christ. Paul, that was Paul's mission statement. My mission statement, he says, is to proclaim Christ to you so then you become mature in Christ until Christ is formed in you. And then he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, the spirit that he powerfully works in me. That is Christian ministry. That is Christian ministry. Not a big following, not a large mega church, not you know, tens of millions of dollars in a budget, but making sure that Christ is formed in each and every one of you. And then that's Paul's desire. He toils, he labors, he's a woman in childbirth. Uh, and, and the same thing for ministers in, of the word. We are laboring so that Christ is formed in you. So in this passage here, Paul as I said, takes a brief break in his argument to make this passionate plea uh, to the Galatians and to urge them to not turn away from the gospel, but to turn away from those who are seeking to enslave them again. I've said it before, I'll say it again, the desire, the lure of legalism is devastating to the church because what legalism does is it makes more of us and it makes less of Christ. And we all Because we, we, we always end up doing is we end up reducing the the requirements of the law and increasing our ability to keep them. That's what legalism teaches, and it's devastating to the gospel, and it's devastating to the church. Christian ministry needs to be about Christian formation or conforming us to the image of Christ through the word and sacrament. It's not sexy. It's not, it, it seems weak, right? You know, week in, week out, I'm up here reading out of this book, and, and, 
giving you a message based out of a passage in this book. It doesn't seem like it should work, but that's where the power of Christ comes. That's where the power of the Spirit comes through as he takes this word and forms it in your heart. Legalism is slavery. It is a backwards move from a redemptive historical perspective. It appeals to our flesh, but in the end it produces doubt and anxiety because Think about it. What, what does legalism say? Okay, it says I can do it. Well, then how do you know you've done enough? Right? How many works do you have to do? What, what grade do you have to get in this class in order to, to pass? Right? You know, if you, if, if you don't realize that you have to have 100% and that you can never get there, then you're going to fail. You're doomed to failure. So it always leads to doubt. always leads to anxiety. You know, think of all the other non-Christian religions, and they say, well, you know, essentially they boil down to this. You know, my hope is that my good works outweigh my bad works. Okay, that's fine. How do you know? Have you, can you, have you seen the scale? Have you seen how it's balancing? It's like, you know, how do you know you've done enough? It's like, I just, I just hope I have. Well, that doesn't seem very secure, if you ask me. The gospel is about our freedom in Christ because he has accomplished the law for us. If you understand what Christian salvation is, there's no doubt and anxiety. Or at least there should not be. Why? Because you are secure in Christ. It's because you cannot do what Christ has done. That's where the security is. That's where the assurance is. It's the assurance that, okay, I know my faith is weak. I've got a little teeny tiny mustard size seed faith. But as long as my faith is placed in Christ, then I know I'm secure. My, his promises are secure. His word is true. I know that I can... Uh, trust in this and that my faith is secure. Well, we'll stop here because I'm at time. Lord willing, next time we will finish chapter 4 of Galatians.